Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to Episode 9, Imelda Marcos on the Fast Lane. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history, together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Bowl how we bowl. Consider marital infidelity when we consider marital infidelity. That'll do. Excellent. And today I'll be talking about Season 1, Episode 9, Life on the Fast Lane, which aired on March 18th, 1990. And I'm going to tell the story of Emelda Marcos the former First Lady of the Philippines, wife of Ferdinand, and spender of money. She went on trial on March 20th, 1990, and we will find out more about the life of Imelda Marcos and why she went on trial later. Fantastic. If you'd like to interact with the show, you can uh, tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we can't. Or you can send us an eel at podcast at retrospecticus.org. Yep. So, I think without further ado, we'll just get straight into it this time. Yep. Uh, Life on the Fast Lane, although we'll come to that title a bit later, aired on March 18th, 1990. That's a three-week gap from the last episode. Uh, The US viewership, Nielsen rating of 17.5, making it the highest-rated Fox show of the week, beating perennial favourite Married with Children. But Gareth, I hear you all ask, what was number one in the UK at that stage? It was still dub be good to me. But, at number two... We've got an absolute stone-cold classic. And whilst I now prefer this act's earlier, less commercial offerings, I was first introduced to this band by hearing this song repeatedly on a holiday in Spain, so it has nothing but good memories for me. Yes, it's the B-52s with Love Shack. Oh, my word, Love Shack. Formed in uh, 1976 as a surf dance band, employing unusual instrumentation and tunings, and the uncanny presence of lead singer Fred Schneider who it is incredibly uh, satisfying to do an impersonation of. Um, They immediately struck it big anywhere but America, so the UK, Australia, Canada, that kind of place. English-speaking, but with more of an appreciation for the unusual, shall we say. The album this was taken from, Cosmic Thing, was a comeback of sorts after the tragic AIDS-related death of founder member Ricky Wilson in 1985. They did put out an album in 1986, but it was less of a collaborative affair, and they went on hiatus until 1989. But this would be a start of a real purple patch of B-52's awareness, with singer Kate Pearson appearing on singles by Iggy Pop and R.E.M., and Schneider himself scoring a solo hit in the Hot 100 with Monster, which is a really, really, really odd song. Monster. I probably haven't heard it. Uh, Not many people have, which is odd considering it got into the charts. Uh, I'll give you a sample lyric. There's a monster in my pants, and it does a nasty dance. Ooh. Ugh. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's given me the jibbles. Yes, um, so when that's getting in the charts, it's clear that people couldn't get enough of them, which is just really good to see. An, an underground, non-conformist band getting a really nice reward for their efforts. I cannot sum up how glad I am that the B-52s exist. Everything from <laughs> their, their sound to their aesthetic to just them in general, they are absolutely brilliant. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. And I would love at this stage to bust out a Fred Schneider impersonation myself, but maybe I'll wait till everyone's gone. <laughs> the only other B-52 song I know is Rock Lobster. Yes, which because is from, it's weird. from the exact opposite end of their career. So that was their first single. Oh, right, okay. Uh, oh, sorry, second. I think Planet Claire was their first single. But, uh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, two vastly different songs. 
uh, vastly different production styles. Uh, it just shows how long they were going for. You know? Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, Brilliant stuff. The other uh, big hit they had in this country was um, Meet the Flintstones, uh, credited to the BC 52s for <laughs> the uh, live action Flintstones movie starring John oh, Goodman. God, I uh, which probably wasn't that much um, longer after this, come to think of it. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. And of course, they, they made an appearance in The Simpsons themselves with, uh, with a glove slap. Absolutely. In a later one. Yes, in the, in the episode with tobacco in. Yes. E I E I annoyed grunt. Um, <laughs> But anyway, welcome to the B-52s podcast. Yes, yes. Uh, we'll, we'll probably call it Cosmic Thing, I think. Yep. Uh, or Monster in My Pants, one of the two. <laughs> um, let's get on with The Simpsons. Uh, production number 7G11. So this was one of the last episodes to be uh, finished. But uh, as we just saw, there were a number of animation issues mm. in the show itself. There was a very wobbly worktop at one stage. Yes, yes. We should explain. We've we, We've actually made the decision to watch the episode that we're talking about right before we do the recording. We probably should have been doing this from the start, really, but uh, yeah. that's what we're doing now. A, a little glimpse behind the curtain there for yeah. you. It's, uh, yeah. we're, we're, this podcast should be a lot better now. We've actually started watching The Simpsons. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, um, the chalkboard and couch gag, none. Mm. As per Moaning Lisa, we fade straight into The Simpsons' home from the approach to the uh, Springfield Elementary, which just looks wrong to me. Uh, but at the time, they, I guess they hadn't definitely laid out that there was going to be a couch gag every time. No. So, you know, I guess they could have gotten away with it. So what happens? Well, it's Marge's birthday. And the whole family are working hard to make her feel special. Except, of course, Homer, who briefly believes it is his own birthday, when Bart and Lisa deliver a huge stack of pancakes for a birthday breakfast, and then races to the mall to get a belated present. Marge's sisters, Patty and Selma who I'm not sure we've mentioned explicitly before, hence the identifier. Reminder of the inappropriate choices Homer has made for her birthday presents previously, including a tackle box and a Connie Chung calendar. I did look up who Connie Chung was. Um, she's an American news anchor uh, and uh, presenter. I think she is married to or was married to Geraldo Riviera. Okay. a slightly better known uh, face in this, uh, this country. Uh, but it to be honest, what I found wasn't that funny, so I decided to, to move on. Um, <laughs> and move on I do. To where the family gathers at the Singing Sirloin for a dinner amongst warbling waiters. And Homer unveils his latest mistake. A green bowling ball with the name Homer conspicuously engraved on its surface. <laughs> by smashing Marge's birthday cake with it. Mm -hmm. Not a good look. Knowing that Homer is obviously after the ball for himself, Marge decides to teach him a lesson by actually using it, and goes to Barney's new bowlerama the next day. It's new because there was some kind of disaster that befell it in the previous episodes, which is only mentioned on a, on a newscast, but I can't for the life of me remember exactly what it was. It's either caught fire or fell down or something like that. Um, and I can't even remember what episode it was. Well, since, since that was when we weren't watching them. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Yet more proof that this slight change in format was uh, well needed. Yes, definitely. Um, anyway, uh, after she struggles into ill-fitting and moist shoes, she discovers she's actually pretty good at hitting the seven pin, regardless of what lane it's on. <laughs> but sadly, nothing else. A fellow bowler spots her predicament and, out of the kindness of his own heart, decides to intervene. Said character is Jacques, a Lothario whose hunting ground is the lanes. He offers to teach her how to bowl, first suggesting she get rid of her homer, the ball, not the person. Or is it? Mm -hmm. $25 a lesson is the price, and Marge accepts. Meanwhile, Homer is looking after the kids to little comedic or storyline value. The next night, Jacques gives Marge a bowling glove, 
gets her proper shoes and improves her game no end, but also takes every opportunity to get closer to her. When dropping her at home, he plays his hand, and as his heart and hips cry proceed, he invites her to brunch. It's not quite breakfast, it's not quite lunch, but it comes with a slice of cantaloupe at the end. <laughs> you don't get completely what you would at breakfast, but you get a good meal. Yes, yes. That, that was the first time I'd ever heard of brunch. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was an American phenomenon that, that, that sweeped through this country, and it was... It was just an excuse to have a late breakfast. Yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 it's like, oh, oh, I had a heavy night last night. It's 11 o'clock. Uh, let's have a fry up. Uh, let's call it brunch. Let's be sophisticated. That's what brunch was. See, the, the term in my house was quite simply just for late breakfast, usually yep. of a weekend. But brunch these days has basically evolved into late breakfast with alcohol, mm. as far as I can tell. I should have it more often. I, I, I haven't had a brunch with alcohol ever. We should do that. Let's do that. Let, let, yeah, let, yeah. Let's do brunch. Let's let's do a retrospecticus brunch. Excellent. We'll, <laughs> we, we'll work out some sort of support group around it. It'll be fine. Welcome to the brunch podcast. Right, okay, let's go. <laughs> um, and Marge hesitantly agrees to brunch. Just in case yes, anyone's forgotten yeah. what we're talking about. Uh, Homer is starting to notice a distance between himself and Marge, and even Bart and Lisa see that Marge is overcompensating with treats and special lunches. From lunches to brunches, and Marge is learning what a mimosa is when she is spotted by the town gossip Helen Lovejoy. And having dismissed her, she is shocked to the point of fainting by Jacques' proposal that she go to his apartment the next day. She dreams of the wonders awaiting her, including his many trophies awarded for lovemaking, and all the romance and value she has been lacking in her relationship with Homer. She decides to accept the invitation. Later, Homer finds the bowling glove and realises it was a gift from an admirer, at which point Bart asks him to play catch, which results in Homer getting beamed and collapsing. <laughs> the penny is now dropping for Bart as well. Mm. And it's a very, very good noise when Homer gets hit on the head by a baseball. Absolutely. It's a very, yeah, it's very satisfying. Hollow and violent, yes. I think is the best way I would describe <laughs> that. Much like myself. Uh, the next day, Homer is desperate to say something, to reach out to Marge and show his feelings, but can't. But at the last second, he busts out the following speech. You know, I've been thinking, everyone makes peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but usually the jelly drips out over the sides and the guy's hands get all sticky. But your jelly stays right in the middle where it's supposed to. I don't know how you do it. You've just got a gift, I guess. And I've always thought so. I've just never mentioned it. But it's time you knew how I feel. I don't believe in keeping feelings bottled up. <laughs> it's it, it, it's sort of sweet and tragic, that speech. It, it, it's like you've got a relationship on the rocks and you're trying to do something about it and that's what you come up with. See, I, I've always thought that Marge recognised in that because of Homer's usual reticence to actually show his feelings, that he was actually trying his best to, yeah. to reach out at that stage. Mm. Um uh, which is a slight spoiler for this next sentence, but uh, here we go. Uh, Marge drives towards Jacques' flat. I'll be glad when I don't have to say Jacques anymore. I'm really having trouble with that. Yeah, it's not a good. It's not a good word. Marge drives towards Jacques' flat at the Fiesta Terrace, but passes a number of well-placed sites and businesses that give her pause to reconsider, and goes instead to the power plant to surprise Homer and start working on rekindling their passions. Homer goes to the back seat of his car with the woman he loves, and he won't be back for ten minutes. <laughs> that, 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 I, that I think is the best line of the first series. <laughs> that has me rolling around that line. It's brilliant. I, I, I couldn't give you much of an argument on that one, actually. That is, a, <laughs> that is a line for the ages. A line that was written, or at least credited to the writer, John Schwartzwelder. 
Oh, yes. Who, as we know, doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no such person as John Schwarzwelder. It's, it's impossible to say. It's, it's just some people having a laugh. Yeah. Let, let, let's make up this writer, because, you know, we don't want to put our names to it, and let's give him a really unpronounceable name, John Schwarzwelder. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> so, uh, a couple of character debuts in this one. Uh, pretty obviously, Jacques. Mm-hmm. Uh, bowling coach, sex pest, and possibly French. Though he does lose his accent at least once, which could possibly suggest he's putting that on. Yeah, yeah. He's voiced by Albert Brooks again, who we last heard very recently as Bob in Call of the Simpsons. I think it's quite a while until we hear from him again. Yeah, um, but yeah. Another, another tour de force. Yeah, absolutely. He, 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 he's very, very versatile, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Because Bob from Bob's RV is meant to be Texan, I think. And then he's being... French, he's being very, uh, very sexy French. You know, very low, very, uh, very punctuated. Yeah. Funnily enough, I saw the the episode that we uh, briefly mentioned in our talk about Call of the Simpsons, which is Mobile Homer, a season sixteen episode where he uh, but has reason to buy another RV from Bob at Bob's RV Roundup. And I'm pretty sure Bob isn't voiced by Albert Brooks in that one. Okay. I think Albert Brooks quite likes just doing a character once building that character I think that's why Hag Scorpio hasn't returned mm. uh, and yet um, Brooks did the voice of Ross Cargill who is the the head of the EPA ah. in the Simpsons movie which was uh, the, the role of lead villain was originally going to be Hag Scorpio okay so I, I wonder whether that was an actor based uh, change attack there yeah possibly or whether they just didn't think Scorpio would make a, a convincing villain since so many people like the character yeah, yeah, and, and also you know, Scorpio's been done. It, it it would be very unlike good Simpsons to to you know just to just go back to a character who's who's had their story arc, if you know what I mean. Which yeah. is which is yeah. what Hank Scorpio had. Oh, just to show that we're uh, contemporary, and we're paying attention. Uh, news reaches me that there's a second Simpsons film in development. I have I have heard that rumor. Yes, I know literally nothing else but that. So we'll be watching yep. that space with uh, some interest. Yeah, there we are. Uh, mo- modern Simpsons news. Second, <laughs> second movie, maybe. <laughs> stay, stay tuned, because we know naff all. <laughs> uh, return to Jacques, anyway. Um, here's another character, like Marvin Monroe, who would appear in the opening titles to The Simpsons for years on end. Which he- makes him seem like he's been more used than he has. Wait, when's he in the... He's one of the people that Bart uh, skateboards around. He's not a person at the bus stop. No, no. Okay. It's, it's in the, the slightly later opening title sequence oh, from season two or three, I think I, it is. I, I know what you mean. He's, he's on the pavement and he's yeah. weaving through people and the last one is Chief Wiggum. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of them is Jack Brunswick. Yeah, one oh, of wow. them also is uh, Bleeding Gums Murphy. Oh, okay. And one of them is Marvin Monroe. So I think it was. I think they're very, all very early sort of characters that were introduced. Okay, well, I've my eyes peeled for that. I didn't know. Oh. So there we go. Um, he's also reappeared in other episodes, most notably season seven, episode twelve, Team Homer, as a member of a bowling team called the Home Wreckers, <laughs> which also featured Mindy Simmons and Lurleen Lumpkin, both of whom will drive Homer close to cheating on Marge, and Princess Cashmere who really isn't quite in that league. No. But we'll be meeting her very soon, so you can mm-hmm. judge for yourself. And we also first see Helen Lovejoy in this episode, the wife of Reverend Timothy Lovejoy, who we recently discussed. She loves nothing more than gossiping, and is best known for her latter-day catchphrase, 
Won't someone please think of the children? Deployed during any even slight suggestion of morally problematic occurrences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She's voiced by Maggie Roswell, who left the show after a pay dispute due to the amount of travelling she was having to do. It's believed her decision to leave may have hastened the death of Maud Flanders, another of her characters. Mm. She returned in 2002 and now records her lines from home, so that's all good for her. And another debut, though not of a character, is of Barney's Bowlerama, mentioned previously, but glimpsed here in its entirety for the first time. It was meant to be owned by Barney Gumble, but the writers couldn't imagine Barney as a business owner due to his rampant alcoholism. So it wound up in the hands of his uncle Al, as revealed in And Maggie Makes Three. Mm-hmm. Uh, no appearance for this shino ballo this time, <laughs> which uh, we can all agree is disappointing. I loved, in this episode, the shops in Springfield Mall when Homer goes desperately looking for a present. Yes, yes. Because the first one's a fax machine shop. Uh, no, it's not. A, an answering machine shop. It is indeed the International mm. House of Answering Machines, followed by the Jerky Hut, the Ear Piercery, the Caramel Corn Warehouse, or indeed the Caramel Corn Carmel, Warehouse, yeah. as it's uh, Carmel, spelled. Caramel, Which, yeah. uh, notably, is written off by Homer as being too corny, <laughs> uh, and girdles and such fancy lingerie. Girdles and such, I missed that. <laughs> so, would you like some did you knows? Yes. Okay. Well, we've already established that you do know one of these. <laughs> uh, so there's a couple of film references in this. The final scenes with Homer carrying Marge to the car echo an officer and a gentleman, and the dream sequence with Marge dancing with Jacques is apparently reminiscent of a scene in The Gay Divorcee. Oh, okay. Uh, I've not seen either film, but I am aware of the scene in An Officer of a Gentleman. Yes, yes, me too. I mean, I, mean, I, I have seen very few films, so, yeah, a lot of these references are lost on me. This episode won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Animated Programme, brackets, for programming one hour or less, close brackets, in 1990, defeating fellow Simpsons episode Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire. Remember what I was telling you before about how there was a loophole that allowed them to enter two episodes into a category yes, that yes, generally only get one in yeah. because Simpsons roasting was considered a special. Yes. Um, yeah, and it, it was the first Simpsons episode to win the award, but it was the first season, so that's kind of yeah goes without yeah. saying. Uh, said it anyway. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> now here's an odd thing: that the last did you know is a I didn't know, and to the extent that I always feel like this has been made up. This is this is a thing that everywhere I've been to research this episode has mentioned this, including the old Simpsons archive capsules, which are a great source of uh, at least the quotes and you know some some kind of digi-nos and freeze frames and that kind of thing, and, and which I'm not afraid to admit is one of my main research areas for these uh, episodes. So it, yeah, it's all over the place, but I've just never heard of this before. Mm-hmm. So when I was searching for the episode, it came up under the title Jacques to be wild okay which doesn't make any sense does it uh i'm thinking born to be wild but exactly so apparently and i've I've read this on several sources although one of them was wikipedia so citation very much needed but apparently the original story this is according to bob beecher the original story had marge taking lessons with a swedish tennis instructor named bjorn Okay. Hence the original title made more sense, Bjorn to be Wild. Right. Apparently the producers decided to change the name to something that made a bit more sense once they changed the name of the character. 
Okay. So Bjorn to be wild makes sense if the character's called Bjorn. Doesn't make any sense if the character's called Jacques. Yeah. You call it Jacques to be wild. There's no reason to call it that because it doesn't bear any resemblance no. to what was there in the first place. This is bizarre. Although it is apparently called that in some um, some areas and resources still. Uh, and they went with life on the fast lane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And that is why it is on the uh, the DVD that we were watching earlier. Yes. Uh, that is why it is in most places. Uh, Jacques to be wild is, is listed as an alternate title everywhere that I've looked. Mm-hmm. Um, so there we go. I, I thought I was going... Crackers. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I've, I've never heard this before. And it sounds, uh, you know, perhaps a p- professional jealousy or something like yeah. that, or, or nerdish jealousy, but I, I've <laughs> just never, ever heard of this before. So no. how could it possibly be true? It's no, and, and, and it's... I'm trying to work out what, where they would get the idea of... Right, okay, Marge is tempted by someone. Now, who's she going to be tempted by? I know, a Swedish tennis player. Because I don't think The Simpsons ever played tennis. And Ooh, unfortunately, there was a, a terrible, I think it's season 12 episode called Tennis the Menace. Oh, okay. Which uh, featured, yeah, yeah, featured but... the voices of the Williams sisters, Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras, which doesn't age it at all, obviously. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. But by that time, it would have just been, hey, here's The Simpsons playing tennis. Hello, Andre Agassi. Hello, Venus Williams. Any jokes? Uh, you are incredibly close to the mark with that one. Yeah. Incredibly close. Um, but yeah, no, at this stage, uh, because of course the other thing is the Simpsons playing tennis doesn't make any sense in the first place. No. They're not, not as a family, the kind of people that would be interested in tennis. No. H- H- Homer is markedly lazy, so he wouldn't do anything nearly as active as playing tennis. So yeah, that, that, that just seems bizarre that they would just pluck that idea that, oh, oh they'll play tennis. Tennis! So weird. How would you even get to that with this episode as well? Considering the whole uh, spark of it is Homer buying the bowling ball for himself. Yeah. You couldn't use any of that as the setup. No, no. You couldn't have Homer going out and buying a personalised tennis racket. Unless, oh God, I'm do- doing a armchair writing here, but um, <laughs> unless Patty and Selma bought her tennis lessons knowing that the, the coach would be somebody that would attempt to seduce oh. her and attempt to break um, her and Homer up. Oh, you, you're onto something there. You're right. onto something there. Now, now that's making sense. But also Swedish. Obvi- obviously he would have been based on Bjorn Borg. Mm. And Bjorn Borg, I think you could say in the 70s, was quite attractive, wasn't he? He was he's quite quite gruff with the hair and the beard and everything. I'm, I, I'm sort of warming to it now. Yeah. If you know what I mean. If, if you sort of detach it from what it ended up becoming, then yeah, it sort of makes sense. Excellent. Well, maybe we should write that episode <laughs> and then do an episode of the podcast about it. Yeah. 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 Who would we have playing Bjorn? Uh, I'll probably still go with Albert Brooks, to be honest. He, he could do a sexy Swedish accent. Yeah. I've no idea what a sexy Swedish accent would sound like, but... Uh, Oh, I was, I, was temp- I was tempted to let fly there, but I think I'm, I think I'm just going to let this uh, opportunity pass me by. Well, the only stereotypical Swedish accent there is is Swedish chef from the Muppets. Absolutely. Hindish um. foodie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not going to go any further with that. That was ridiculous. Okay, so, so that was... Well, no, it was... I, I was going to call it the other name, but it was Life on the Fast Lane. Yep. And it will remain Life on the Fast Lane for as long as I have anything to say about it. I can tell you that much. Um, and now... Imelda Marcos. Okay, okay. So, 
Okay, Imelda Marcos. So before I start, I just want to go over what I'm trying to achieve with the history bit. So this is intended to be a 20-minute overview of the event, kind of a taster, if you will. I want people to listen and then want to go out and know more. Uh, I, I, I'm not Dan Carlin. That guy, is he's, he's amazing. He does a show called Hardcore History, and each show is four hours long. And he's done and he's done a series on the history of World War One, and that was a six parter. So you know, a whole twenty four hours of detail and story, and, uh, and 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 he's got a fantastic voice as well. He's 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 American. He's quite well spoken and quite staccato, and and he says end quote quite a lot. He's awesome. So yeah, if, if you want detail from your history. Go and listen to Dan Carlin. It's great. Stop telling them there are other podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so our story starts in the Philippines, a country in Southeast Asia with a population of over 100 million. The island nation gets its name from Philip II of Spain. So the land was named in his honour by the Spanish explorer Roy Lopez de Villalobos. So you won't be surprised to learn that the Philippines were colonised by Spain from the 16th century onwards. Although their rule was far from stable, the Spanish controlled the Philippines until 1898, when the islands were ceded to the United States following the Spanish-American War. That's quite a story in itself, the Spanish-American War. Need to work out an excuse to do that. After that, war broke out between the nationalist First Philippine Republic and the US. So the First Philippine Republic, I suppose you might call them an insurgent group, but basically they wanted the Philippines to be independent and of course the US wasn't having it. After a million Filipinos died, a lot of them in a cholera epidemic kind of caused by the war, the US prevailed but shortly afterwards they initiated a long process of making the Philippines independent. Now this process was interrupted by World War II. The Empire of Japan occupied you know many islands in the Pacific and they invaded the Philippines in 1941, just 10 hours after attacking Pearl Harbor. Towards the end of the war, in 1944, General Douglas MacArthur led an army to defeat the Japanese. The capital of the Philippines, Manila, was left in ruins, and over the course of the war, an estimated 1 million Filipinos died, including thousands in the Bataan Death March, where the Japanese army forced tens of thousands of American and Filipino POWs to march to a POW camp. You know, there's lots of examples of the the Japanese doing that. One person who most probably wasn't on the Batan Death March, despite claiming otherwise, was one Ferdinand Emmanuel Edrelin Marcos. Hopefully that's a familiar name. He's the man who would go on to be president of the Philippines for more than 20 years. Ferdinand Marcos was born into a political family. His father... Mariano Marcos was a congressman. Early on, the young Ferdinand was embroiled in controversy. One of his father's political opponents was a man called Julio Nalundasan. In 1935, he beat Mariano Marcos in an election for the office of representative for the second district of Ilocos Norte. This was his second consecutive victory against Marcos. The day after the election, Nalundasan was found shot dead at his home. The Marcoses were put on trial for the murder and convicted, with the court deciding that Ferdinand fired the gun. Ferdinand was sentenced to death. However, the family appealed to the Supreme Court of the Philippines, and the decision was overturned. 
The judge in charge of the appeal was Jose P. Laurel, who would go on to become the president of the Philippines. Oh. So, yeah, I think there's a fair bit of... What's that, what's that phrase? Greasy palms? Yeah. 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 Fair bit of that going on. So having survived a brush with the death penalty, the younger Marcos went to the University of the Philippines to study law. Then World War II arrived. Marcos was already in the reserves, so therefore was called up to fight. His military record is very controversial. He claimed to have received 27 medals, including one from General Douglas MacArthur himself. However, many historians dispute these claims, believing them to be propaganda. Following the war, the US granted independence to the Philippines in 1946. Marcos served as the representative for the 2nd District of Ilocos Norte for 10 years, from 1949 to 1959. He would then become a senator, becoming the Senate Minority Floor Leader in 1960 and Senate President in 1963. I should say that the government of the Philippines back then was modelled on the US, so they had a Congress and a Senate and a, and a President. While he was a congressman, he got married. He was introduced to Imelda Romualdez, a well-connected aristocrat and controversial winner of the Miss Manila beauty pageant, and they met at a budget hearing in the Philippines Congress. Oh. Can you imagine a more romantic setting than that? Their eyes meet as the speaker goes over the budget figures for the year. It's what you dream of, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They had a whirlwind romance and were married just 11 days after meeting each other. Okay, that's a, that's a tad swift. Mm-hmm. That's very, very swift. They would go on to have four children, including a daughter, Aimee, that's I-M-E-E, which I assume is pronounced Aimee, and a son, Ferdinand Jr., who for some reason has the nickname Bong Bong. And I tried as hard as I could to find out why he's got the nickname Bong Bong, bong and I utterly failed. So, so if anyone knows why Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is called Bong Bong, please email podcast at retrospecticus.org. I can't wait for the results of that. Yeah. <laughs> that plea. So, so those two children would go on to have political careers themselves, as we will hear about later. In 1965, Marcos ran for president. He was up against the incumbent Diosdado Manglapas, who was running for a second term. Marcos and his Nationalist Party ran on a populist platform and emphasised his amazing war record. Imelda certainly made an impact on the campaign too, shaking hands with and giving gifts to all the right people. So the couple were compared to the Kennedys. Imelda also had a talent for singing and would sing folk songs during the campaign to, to try and, you know, win over various people. So we'll march day and night by the big cooling towers. Sorry. <laughs> now that's the sort of song that might have been sung against her. Anyway. Marcos would go on to win the election, taking 51.98% of the vote. I mean, imagine making changes to your country on just under 52% of the vote. I mean, <laughs> who would ever do that? Anyway. Ferdinand Marcos became president of the Philippines and Imelda became the first lady. Once in the position of First Lady, Imelda did much more than just look pretty and make tea. She had her own office, known as a music room, where she would meet cabinet members, business leaders and various others. Ferdinand asked her to revive the national pride and curb national weakness. Okay. And her answer to this was the cultural centre of the Philippines. It originally had a budget of 15 million pesos... The exchange rate back then was roughly 10 pesos to the dollar. 
But its final cost was 50 million. So 15 and 50. Okay. Now, I don't know a huge amount about construction, but even I know that if you're more than 300% over budget, then something's gone amiss. A big part of Imelda's power came from her foreign diplomatic missions. The list of people she met is as long as your arm. So President Lyndon Johnson, Cuban leader Fidel Castro, and Colonel Gaddafi all had meetings with her. She used her charm to her advantage, becoming the first woman to be honoured at the court of Saudi Arabia. You know, uh, and she went there to offer condolences following the assassination of King Faisal. One thing Imelda was famous for was her lavish spending. She would take frequent trips to New York and spent billions on the presidential palace. And there are lots of stories about the lengths that Imelda Marcos would go to to spend money. I have a feeling some of them might be urban legends. Um, I'll just run a few of them past you. So, for example, one story says that she managed to make a flight from Rome, turn around and land again because she forgot to buy cheese. I mean, I love cheese as much as the next person. Yeah, yeah. Probably more than the next person. But yeah, that, that, that does seem excessive. Yeah, yeah. Um, on another occasion, she managed to spend $2,000 on chewing gum at an airport. She had an extensive jewellery collection that included a rare pink diamond worth $5 million. And she also had an art collection which boasted works by Botticelli, Canaletto, Monet, Michelangelo and Raphael. Is so, that not the uh, flying hellfish bonanza? Uh, uh, <laughs> it kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? Um, it, it yeah, so, so, so amazing level of amazing levels of wealth. So while she was first lady, um, Imelda Marcos transferred roughly five billion dollars to a Swiss bank account under the pseudonym Jane Ryan. So although it was fairly obvious to most that the Marcoses were funding their outrageous lifestyle by stealing from the Philippines via corruption, basically, they had an excuse that the money came from their vast personal wealth. And this wealth came in the form of the mysterious Yamashita's Gold. I, 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 lo- I love that name, Yamashita's Gold. It sounds like um, mysterious cities of gold, that, that old cartoon. So the story behind that is that in the run-up to the Second World War... Japanese looted vast amount of gold and moved a lot of it to the Philippines during the occupation. Ferdinand Marcos found the gold in a cave, as you do, and after the Japanese were kicked out, he kept the gold for himself. I mean, personally, I don't believe a word of it. I think it's mm. just a, I think it's just a cover for corruption. Which is a shame because it's actually an awesome story, if true. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I mean, there, there, there has there have been sort of legal wranglings over it because someone tried to sue him for taking the gold. Ah. Um, but I'm not entirely sure how you try and sue someone for something that doesn't exist. Uh, claims got thrown out anyway. <laughs> Following Marcos being elected to a second term, things in the Philippines got a little heated. A communist military group called the New People's Army, or NPA, was active, and in 1972 they staged a raid on an armory taking a large amount of weapons. They were also supplied by China, who at the time was led by Chairman Mao Zedong, who had a policy of assisting communist groups abroad. In addition to this, there were rumours of a coup being plotted against him by a group of retired generals and members of the opposition Liberal Party. Then in 1971 came the Plaza Miranda bombing. A bomb went off right in the middle of a Liberal Party rally, killing nine people. The Liberal Party blamed Marcos, and Marcos in turn blamed the Communists. On the back of this, 
Marcos declared martial law in 1972, effectively making himself a dictator of the Philippines. Press freedoms were curtailed, Congress was shut down and opposition leaders arrested, and Marcos ruled by decree. Strangely enough, this state of martial law was put to a referendum in 1973, where it passed with 90% of the vote. Obviously rigged. Hmm. Can you imagine asking people, do you want to live under martial law? Uh, yes, please. Yeah. It's the old uh, turkeys voting for Christmas. Yeah, deal. yeah. So during martial law, the army quadrupled in size. Over 60,000 Filipinos were imprisoned for political reasons. And the country received billions of dollars in aid from the USA. We said before, that's how it works. If, if you, you can be a ruthless dictator, but if you oppose communism, then you were a friend of the United States in the 70s and 80s. So Marcos officially ended martial law in 1981. Six months later, the country held a presidential election, which the opposition boycotted and Marcos won by landslide. Then in 1983 came an event which would weaken the Marcos regime. Opposition leader Benigno Aquino Jr. was allowed out of the country in 1980 to have heart surgery in the States. He stayed there for three years on a research fellowship at Harvard University. As martial law was lifted, he arranged to fly back to the Philippines. He got out of the plane, walked down the stairs, but as soon as his feet touched the airport tarmac, he was shot and killed by an assassin's bullet. The killing sent shockwaves through Filipino society and the Marcoses were blamed. Although, to be fair, we don't know with concrete certainty exactly who did it. Okay. I'll make that clear. Following that, Marcos's health deteriorated. He had lupus, which led to kidney problems. He had two kidney transplants, although he tried not to let that information leave the palace. One of his doctors who knew was even found murdered. So, again... One of the things that stands out about this story is that it's often very hard to explain the facts. Is it, so, so there was a doctor who knew about Marcos's kidney transplants and he was found murdered. Sometimes you just have to draw your own conclusions, I guess. In 1985, Marcos held a snap election. His main rival was Corazon Aquino, wife of the murdered Benigno. Marcos won this election amid widespread claims of vote rigging. However, this time... The people had had enough. The People Power Revolution took place, and Marcos was forced to flee. Just before fleeing, he had a telephone call with US Senator Paul Laxalt, who famously advised him to cut and cut cleanly. The Marcoses and their closest allies fled to Hawaii with around $15 million worth of jewellery, gold, and luxury goods. Shortly afterwards, people stormed their palace in Manila, and the true extent of their wealth was discovered. One of the more remarkable things that was discovered was the extent of Imelda's shoe collection. Ah, yes. Now, see, this, this is my memory of Imelda Marcos. Mm, mm. Literally as a punchline about shoes. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, do you know how many pairs of shoes they found? Only that it was an awful lot. Do you want to take a guess? Oh, oh no. Oh, I'm going to be either way over or way under. I'm going to say... 6,000. That's, that's, that's very good. That's very good. The number I've got is 2,700. But I have seen estimates put it as high as 10,000. So. Oh, okay. So, so, so I'm, not, I'm not massively misguided. No, no, absolutely not. 6,000 very good guess. So although Ferdinand Marcos planned to return to the Philippines and overthrow Aquino, his health failed and he died in Honolulu on September 28, 1989. Although Ferdinand had passed away, 
the story of Imelda Marcos was far from over. In 1988, a federal grand jury in Manhattan had indicted the Marcoses on charges which included racketeering. It didn't come to trial until March 20th, 1990, just two days after Life on the Fast Lane first aired, by which time Ferdinand was dead. Imelda was acquitted on all charges. Apparently she charmed the court. And the jury came to the conclusion that Ferdinand was to blame for everything and Imelda was innocent. You know, very convenient, blame someone who's just died. Later that year, a Swiss court decided that any cash that was held in Swiss bank accounts would only be returned to the Philippines if she was convicted there. So this was attempted in Manila in 2008, but she was acquitted of all charges. Probably using her charm again. Imelda returned to the Philippines in 1991. Can you guess what she did? Bought some shoes? She may well have bought some shoes. Something a bit bigger than that. Uh, ran for president? Yes, she did. Very good. Wow, that was a guess. That well. was very good. Um, yeah, so she ran for president. Didn't do that well, coming fifth out of seven candidates. That didn't dampen her political ambitions, though. And in 1995, she became a congresswoman, representing the first district of Leyte. She ran for president again in 1998, this time coming ninth out of 11. In 2010, Imelda ran for Congress again, this time in the second district of Ilocos Norte. She was elected and replaced her own son, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who's still referred to as Bong Bong. (laughs) And and Bong Bong went off to become a senator. And Marcos Jr. had held that position since 2007, having succeeded... Can you guess who, who he succeeded? Oh, the daughter. Is yes. It, is it Ime? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep, so, so, so he succeeded Ime Marcos, who was elected in 1998. So, I find that amazing. So at the time of recording in August 2018, Imelda Marcos is still alive and well, still a congresswoman at the age of 89. Okay. And presumably she's still got a very large shoe collection as well. So right, there we yeah. are. That's 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 the story of of Imelda Marcos. I f- I find it amazing how she had such support for so long and still has support. You know, she because because apparently it's still a big issue in the Philippines. This this five billion dollars, and you know, there's discussions over whether she can get it or the children can get it or if it exists at all. But yeah, I I, I like her excuse for why she lived such an extravagant lifestyle. Her, her excuse was that the women of the Philippines were living their lives through her. So they liked seeing her in fancy dresses and in huge palaces and wearing very expensive shoes because, because they could think, you know, that's us. That, that, that's, that's, that's a representation of the Philippines. Or, or, or at least that's her excuse for it. Whilst I was researching this, I watched a documentary where Ruby Wax went to the Philippines to to interview her. And and that's absolutely fascinating because Imelda Marcos, back when that was filmed, uh, still had an amazing voice. And she's there and she's she's playing the piano and she's she's got a really nice singing voice as well. 
So yeah, yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely, absolutely extraordinary person. Absolutely extraordinary. It's very vague shades of the uh, Ceausescu's there. Not the uh, the same sort of violence of the ending, but the sort of the they're living in opulence while there is uh, kind of problems in their own country. Oh yeah, definitely, um, definitely. And obviously they're, they're so close together in terms of the the sort of downfalls that it's. Uh, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I mean, I, I mean, um, chronologically speaking, of course. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, obviously, the difference being is that the Marcos has got away. Yeah, yeah. And they were exiled in Hawaii for a bit, which isn't a bad place to be exiled. No, no, if I was going to be exiled, that would probably be where (laughs) I'd request. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there we are. The story of Imelda Marcos. Excellent. I enjoyed that one. Thank you very much. I I enjoyed them all, of course. (laughs) I'm very much looking forward to doing the next episode because we're going to be talking about the poll tax riots, which is something that... I lived through, I have memories of, and I, and I can pronounce the names of everyone involved. Fantastic. <laughs> we might get on some uh, more classic Retrospecticus Thatcher ranting as well. Oh, quite possibly. Which will give me another reason to bring up Smash and I want to kill somebody. <laughs> so, uh, which is, is always welcome in these parts. Superb, superb. But until then, uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us... Uh, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we can't. Or send us an eel or indeed an email <laughs> at podcast at retrospecticus.org. Yeah. And if you know why Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is called Bong Bong, then please tell me because it's driving me nuts. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Okay. Bye, everyone. See you next time. Bye. Has everyone gone? Uh, yeah. I've got me a car, it's as big as a whale, and we're heading on down to the love shack. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to do another verse, but I think I'll leave it. I've got fond memories of love shack, because I used to go to Norwich City Reserve Games, and for some reason they came out to love shack. I said, why? (laughs) Why love shack? You want to come out with something bombastic? You know, here we are again, win the game. Like, <laughs> Weird. It's not quite as bad as going to see West Bromwich Albion than them coming out to go west by the village people. Oh, but, oh, oh this, this is a separate discussion, but people say that there's no homoeroticism in football. There's loads. How, Tons of it. How, do you, how else do you explain... But one of the most popular tunes sung by football fans is Go West, a song originally by the village people and covered by the Pet Shop Boys. <laughs> you cannot get more homoerotic than that. Anyway, there we are. That was a little bonus this week, so uh, goodbye for real now. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>